The following program is produced and furnished in conjunction with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement, which is entirely responsible for its content. Welcome to Off the Shelf with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement on Federal News Network. Off the Shelf gives a voice to commercial service and product companies selling in the federal market. Roger speaks to members and government officials about procurement policy, trends, innovations, and debates. Now your host, Roger Waldron. Today my guest on Off the Shelf is Greg Giddens. Greg is co-founder and partner in Potomac Ridge Consulting a boutique consultancy that supports federal contractors. Um, Greg has a long, distinguished career in the federal government uh, as a senior executive, um, you know, working his way up the ranks. Uh, and I uh, got to know you, Greg, at your time at the VA. But first of all, Happy New Year and welcome to the show. Thanks, Roger. It's great to be with you. Happy New Year to you. Well, let's first, I want to give you an opportunity. Can you talk a little bit more about your background and career and then maybe a little bit about what Potomac Ridge does to support in support of its clients? Sure. Uh, as you mentioned, I spent a long time uh, in the federal career service. Uh, it's been about 36 years uh, as a federal employee. I worked across uh, four different cabinet agencies, DOD, Department of Transportation, Homeland Security, and, and the VA, and started off actually as an engineer, as an electrical engineer, and got into acquisition and program management. And then that, that leads into when you're working large programs, really organizational change management as well. And as you said, we, I got a chance to work with you uh, when I was at the VA. I spent my last seven years there, retiring in 2017. And while I was there, I ended my career there as the chief acquisition officer, which was where I again got to work with you and appreciated the coalition support. And when I retired, I wasn't really ready to go. I just sit on the porch in the rocking chair. Uh, so I connected uh, with Dave Grant, a guy I knew, but we hadn't worked together. And we both thought that we saw many times in our career that industry and the government were just not coming together in a meaningful way, uh, that there was something there, but they just couldn't get in sync. Uh, and the government sometimes uh, was at issue and that it was being too bureaucratic and, and was not really being open to industry. Sometimes industry didn't know how to engage with the government. Uh, and we thought we could still help the agencies uh, that we knew and loved their mission. Uh, and work with companies to help them really understand how to engage and be successful in the federal marketplace. Yeah, it really is about, you know, understanding culture and organizations, right? And, and, and being able to effectively communicate across those lines. Yeah. So one of the things I um, wanted to ask you about, um, you know, over the past year is just since we are just entered 2024, um, you're actually my the first new show of uh, the new year, so uh, congratulations! <laughs> so, Thank you. <laughs> Honored to be the first. Yes. Yeah, so I just wanted to let's spend some time just talking about your impressions on 2023 in terms of any specific um, trends, uh, events, uh, initiatives, procurement programs that just stand out with regard to. Mm-hmm the last year and what people need sure. to think about going into next, into this year? Well, one of the first ones, certainly, if you're, if you're looking at the VA and thinking about programs and acquisitions, you have to, to have some degree talk about CERNA and the electronic health record. Uh, you know, there's a lot of differing views on that. The VA is working hard to try to make that uh, successful. And to a degree, it takes a lot of oxygen out of the room for some of the other programs. Uh, but even regardless of how it moves forward, one of the other things I, I 
think was a big uh, move for the VA was really the recognition about VISTA modernization. VISTA is not going away anytime soon. Uh, so the VA is going to have to work to invest in that. And, and, and they, like most agencies, continue to be caught in the IT world between how much can they invest in developing new and modernizing versus kind of paying the legacy price to keep the lights on at the systems. So I think that's an area for industry to be be thoughtful about, too. How can they approach the VA recognizing that legacy debt that they have and how can they help them draw that down and create some more investment funds uh, for modernization and for future programs? Uh, also, the, the VA spent a lot of time on supply chain modernization uh, in 2023. That's been a big issue for them. And I think it also helped propel them more toward industry engagement. Uh, and thinking about some of those events, the coalition hosted a great event last fall, uh, and the Ostabu hosted a, a huge uh, veteran small business engagement event. And I've seen the VA uh, in 2023, I think, become a little more engaged with the industry, uh, more webinars, more opportunities uh, for engagement with the industry. And that's somewhat cyclical. It'll come and go, I think. But I, I hope the trend uh, for the VA continues to really have that robust engagement with the industry so they can really understand uh, what's happening in the marketplace. We, we saw some changes in VA procurement uh, in terms of really approaches and evaluation approaches, uh, moving from some narratives to some score sheets uh, on some really big programs. Uh, T4NG 2.0 uh, was mm-hmm. one uh, that did that. And I think we'll start to see that uh, as a trend that will continue into 2024 and starting to use some oral. So, you know, I think the VA is working on moving some things uh, forward and trying some initiatives. There's another big push to continue to move toward best value. Mr. Mike Parrish has been very clear about, you know, really they need to move to to best value and away from low cross technical acceptance and really trying to understand the value of the solutions that are coming in. Yes, it's um, there has been that transformation. And I will say, um, I think your time at the VA and your engage willingness to engage with industry, I think, you know, from our perspective, kind of started the ball rolling towards where we are today with the VA, you know, being much more engaged. So, you know, uh, I mean, that's kudos to your leadership at the time um, as well. You know, one of the things that, that sort of strikes me is that there's so many moving parts. It's at the VA with all the different, whether it's Cerner, Vista, you know, supply chain modernization, and that, you're right, that legacy debt and, and trying to modernize systems at the same time, you have to maintain what you have and just how how big, I don't think people understand how big a challenge that is when you when you, when you're talking about that big an organization. Yeah, and it is hard to really think about it without knowing much of organizations. I don't know the exact uh, employee number now was well north of 400,000. Uh, so even if you think about nothing but the IT infrastructure support, not just the 400,000 plus employees, but all the volunteers that work and the VSOs and everyone that has access uh, to the system and the environment they're doing that in, where it's the benefits uh, side or the healthcare side, the cyber that they have to deal with, protecting of data, that kind of care and feeding of the infrastructure is huge. Uh, even before you start thinking about how do we modernize and prepare for the future, it's it's really hard to get your arms around. And it becomes really critical from a collaborative perspective for the VA uh, to come together and think about their priorities and where they're really going to invest their dollars and where can IT be most leveraged to help support the mission. And, and really how the different 
efforts really actually impact each other, right? It's not, you know, when you think about supply chain modernization, you're talking about, you know, uh, you know, acquiring pharmaceuticals, working that through the system. And then you got the health healthcare records that goes with that because you're, you know, you're tracking the healthcare records of a vet and what, you know, what, how, how they're being treated. And that relates, relates directly back to the supply chain. You know, I think there's huge potential in the yes. modernization, but it's, it's just a challenge to get there. Yeah, there, there's not, there's a lot of dependency. And you mentioned the health records. A lot of that information feeds over for the benefit side as they look to make uh, the right benefit decision for veterans. So that all that gets to be interconnected and intertwined, uh, which makes it even more difficult to kind of sort through and make sure you're on the right critical path. And I, I'm glad you brought up the you know, the idea of best value and Mike Parrish because he did he has emphasized that a great deal. So I just want to it's your perspective that they're going to continue to move in that direction and actually probably move to more the scoring approach versus the narrative and that sort of thing. And um, I think that's, that's the way the government is going in general. I think the VA is trying to catch up. Is that fair to say? Yes, I think that's fair to say. And, and you, you'll hear the other leaders in VA and VHA uh, who, who recently got a new director of their procurement uh, organization you'll hear them all talk about best value. It'll be a process though. It's not going to be, you know, flipping a light switch and it's all going to happen tomorrow. Uh, But I think we're seeing them make steady progress. Yeah. Well, Greg, we're up on the break. When we come back, we'll continue our discussion, maybe touch on a couple other areas of like things that, you know, were big last year in 2023. And then we can start talking about some of the other topics. I know you want to talk about uh, past performance, CPARs, some of the keys to success in that regard, the requirements development. We've got a host of things to talk about. My guest today is Greg Giddens. He's a co-founder, a partner in Potomac Ridge Consulting. I'm Roger Waldron. You're listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. Welcome back to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. I'm Roger Waldron. My guest today is Greg Giddens. Greg is a co-founder and a partner in Potomac Ridge Consulting a boutique consultancy that supports federal contractors, um, you know, working to support the federal customer in the federal market. Um, and Greg, we're, we're talking a lot about VA um, today um, in the first segment. And I, I wanted to keep pulling a thread there because, you know, we talked about them, the VA is moving more to best value um, and the importance of that. And, you know, the, the scorecard, at least for the initial awards, on multiple award contracts and that sort of thing. But another thing that um, I know you've noted is that the VA is shifting more to statements of work that include performance work statements or statements of objectives. Um, um, so just first of all, like what is a statement of objectives? What's the performance work statement? Why? How is that different than when we think about a government spec? Sure. Uh, so it's really different in that you're trying to begin with the end in mind. Right. If we think about the traditional statement of work, it's really the government sitting down and saying, here's the work I want a contractor, a vendor partner to do. Uh, They're not really talking about the performance or what they're trying to get out of the acquisition or the mission. They're really kind of prescribing uh, to the vendor community what work they want done. And and it has to take that and they can't look at it and go, well, they gave me a statement of work uh, for big desktops and really this would be better for laptops. So I'm going to use laptops they have to use that prescribed statement of work. And it really then becomes more about costing. 
who can get the lowest labor rate to do the work the government is saying needs to be done? Statement of objectives really turns that on its head and it's, it, it really starts with, what are we trying to do with the procurement? How are we trying to impact mission? How are we trying to impact either the workforce or the citizens that we're serving? And it brings that objective in up front and then tells industry, you're smart, you're working in these areas. You go devise a solution that helps me meet this objective. And I think that dovetails nicely into the best value because now you have industry can bring different solutions to the table to meet that overall objective. And I think it makes the process go quicker. It's very time consuming for the government to go through and develop very detailed statements of work or performance work standards. And whereas the statement objectives you really lay out, here's what I'm trying to accomplish and then have industry come back and propose to you what they think the right solutions are. Yeah. And I know the, these things you, you know, I've been in this business yeah. for a long time and <laughs> yes. I know like, you know, in the late two thousands performance work statements and, performance-based contracting was, you know, all the rage kind of, so to speak. Then you right. didn't hear about it all that much. And now I think it's back. And what, why do you think the shift again back to it in particular, uh, you know, with the example here, we have the VA looking at it uh, and embracing it. So I, I think part of what happens with that cycle is a renewed focus or lack of focus on the program management discipline, right? You really need to have a strong program management office to do statement uh, of objectives, right? It's much easier to have kind of a recipe. Okay, did they do this task? Did they do this task? Did they do this task? I mean, that becomes really more of a yes or no. And so I think as agencies are able to pull together and really establish a robust program management regimen in discipline, I think that sets them up better to really look at that statement of objectives. And I know the VA has been working on that for the past several years as well. So you know, I think it's kind of a, a combination of things. I think Mr. Parrish, you know, kind of brought this uh, concept in. And while the VA was also maturing their program management, it just made that a really good fit. Yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head because when I think about it, you really have to be um, focused on, you know, how you're going to support the contractor. If you're the government, the contractor's execution, you're asking the contractor to figure out the solution, Right. But you also have to be there to monitor and all that sort of stuff. Right. And I think that takes, you know, a, a bench or a program management capability that that may be why, you know, when there's those, you know, it's hard to do from that perspective, right? You know, yes. it's yep. great returns, but it's hard to do. How, how do you think contractors should approach, you know, this move sort of back to statement objectives performance based? I think they need to, with eyes wide open, engage back with the government and believe what's in the documents, uh, right? If the VA or any agency is putting out a document, they have a statement of objectives, you, you have to respond to what's in the document. So it, it really allows you to think about your solution and your team and how you're going to bring that in and demonstrate success, right? It, and you have to also make that a little bit time bound. Right. If you respond to a statement of objectives and say, okay, great, I can make this happen eight years from now, that's going to be a little bit of a struggle. So you still have to think about a timeline and how you can deliver something, you know, those early increments of success so that the program can get some momentum. Uh, But it is a little scary sometimes to the vendor community, right? When you're used to responding to here's the work I want you to do, and now it's all about labor categories and rates and right, that becomes more mechanical. Uh, I think somewhat kind of the thoughtfulness and really solutioning that's required to respond to a statement of objectives. 
Yeah, it's a much more intellectual or you know, yes. analytical exercise than you know figuring out how to price something at the lowest cost, like for labor rates or whatever. Exactly. Right? You're spot yeah. on. You're spot on. Right. It really takes that kind of some intellectual gymnastics to put together the right solution uh, that'll fit uh, and will right. help the government accomplish its objective. Right. So along the lines, I know one thing we want, uh, you know, we can shift a little bit. I think that's a very positive development. But the other thing I, that I know you, you mentioned with regard to um, the VA is category management. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, they've really, uh, they set up an office a couple years ago where Dr. Ernest Reed is heading up that office and has really, I think, done a great job uh, at, at providing some leadership in this area at the VA. And in fact, the VA is, is becoming recognized as a lead in this. They've had other agencies come to them to, to see how they're doing uh, category management. At the heart of it, it's really about being a smarter, better buyer, right? The VA spends a lot of money uh, with industry in the private marketplace. And they want to make sure they're doing that and leveraging the best value they can, whether that's in terms of economic order quantities or in terms of requirements harmonization. Right? Because category management isn't as much about the procurement vehicles as it is about requirements management. Right? How you lay out the right categories and start to think about your requirements, not just only in the right context, but the right time frame so that you don't go out and march for something and then the neighbor go, oh, I should have bought five more of those and you have to restart the whole process again, right? It's really about bringing that whole collector together on their big A acquisition and trying to make sure they leverage the best way they can with the industry so they can maximize the value for taxpayer dollars. Yeah, and then and data is critical Super. to category manager, right? With right, and, and this is probably true of other agencies too, but I would say the VA's kryptonite is data and it superpowers data. Really, it's kind of both uh, for them. Uh, and that data becomes so important in recognizing what you're spending, how you're spending it, uh, and then starting to use that to do some analytics and predict what's coming so you can get a little bit ahead of the curve. Right. And that, you know, it ties back to what we talked about earlier, like the modernization of the you know, supply chain and all those things, they all are tied together as part of the overall mission to support veterans. Right. And, and the VA is in a place where they're trying to do a lot of big efforts, whether it's the electronic health record, supply chain management, financial management, modernization, uh, looking at HR modernization. And so it's a it's a large, complex organization trying to do some large, complex uh, modernization efforts. Yeah. And, and the last, I guess, you know, I, I could I couldn't leave category management and the data stuff without mentioning credit cards. Right. Yeah. And that's that's um, the kind of Achilles heel for the VA. Right. That, you know, they're trying to get a handle on their. I think they're making some progress, you know, with yes. the MedSurge prime vendor program and some of the other things they're doing. But using that credit card and, you know, is, is something that's hard to get a get a handle on what you're actually spending and buying. And it also costs money. Right. To use right. a credit card. It does. And once but once it's out of people are using that, it's, it's hard to kind of redirect that. Uh, oh, yeah. But I, I think the VA is taking the right approach in that they recognize they got to make it easy to use something other than the credit card. You know, and I heard that clearly at the event that you all held last fall you know, with the med surge the folks. I mean, they're clearly trying to smooth and streamline the process uh, so that both for the industry and for the government, for the VA, and that they provide some easier solutions so that they can really migrate from credit cards because you, you lose a lot of that data. Uh, when you go into right. credit cards, it, it becomes hard to harvest that to understand what you've really been buying. 
Yeah, and I think you're right. I'm mean, absolutely on point that it, you have to make it easier. You know, it's a balancing thing, right? If I'm right. a buyer, I, you know, I'm gonna, and I need the stuff for the, you know, for a veteran. Right. I'm going the quickest way I can get it. You know, right? I gotta go. I gotta go get it. And you know, they have other things they're doing too, right? They, yeah. they have a stack of things they're trying to do, so they can't afford, you know, to take days or weeks to do something. When if they could do a credit card, it's really kind of a more simple process for them. So I think helping the system moving forward is incredibly important. Yeah. So, Greg, we're up on the break. When we come back, I want to shift a little bit. I know you do a lot of work on past performance issues and CPARs is some an area where you, you guys look at. So we'll talk about CPARs and what it is uh, to, you know, when we come back from the break. My guest today is Greg Giddens. He is co-founder and partner at Potomac Ridge Consulting. I'm Roger Waldron, and you're listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. Welcome back to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. I'm Roger Waldron. My guest today is Greg Giddens. Greg is a co-founder and partner in Potomac Ridge Consulting, a boutique consultancy for federal contractors. Um, They support federal companies uh, competing in the federal market to deliver Best value mission support for customer agencies. So in this segment, we'll talk about best value mission support. Uh, let's talk a little bit about the past performance and the CPARS, which is the Contractor Performance Assessment Reporting System. Your organization, Potomac Ridge, has done a lot with that and worked on issues for contractors. First of all, what is that system um, and why is it important? And it is an important system uh, for the federal government. And if you think about it, it's really like the government's yell, right? If you and I were going to go look at a restaurant, uh, we're traveling and we're in town, so let's go find somewhere to eat. We pull up Google, right? We do a map and then hit the restaurant button. And then we start to see what the reviews are about the restaurant, right? It's pretty standard personal practice. That's the same thing that CPARS offers for the federal government. They can go in a database. And they can look at the past performance of companies that have engaged and done business with the government. It started many years ago. Steve Kelman, uh, one of the prior administrators at the Office of Federal Procurement Policy, a procurement legend, uh, right? He, he initially came up with this thought that the past is a good prologue to the future. And then if the company is engaging with the federal government and they're doing good work, it increases the likelihood they're going to do good work in the future, right? So CPARS was set up for the government to capture uh, how well the contractors are doing and how well they're performing. So when they're making their source selection decisions, they factor that in uh, to the equation, right? It's not the only factor, but it's one of the factors that the government looks at in terms of past performance, recency, and relevancy, and how well the company has done. Right. And that's a big, you know, just to connect the dots there, like we were talking about, you know, the narratives, you know, that people are, I mean, the point scoring and right. the use of past experience and past performance on a lot, on these evaluations. Now it directly connects to right. you know, all this past performance information, you know, with regard to companies, when are they going to see uh CPARS evaluation? So they should start to see that around 30 days after the closeout of the contract or, or at their annual renewal. And there's a, like it's a 120 day process, uh, where it's supposed to be uh, completed at, but industry gets a chance to review that uh, and actually make some comments on it, uh, on whether they agree or not. And there's some very specific windows at seven days and 60 days where the industry would really want to engage uh, with the federal government. 
But Roger, I've seen some of the most successful companies not wait till the end of that process to engage with CPARs. I've seen them do some self-assessments at a kind of at a midterm spot, much like what in the federal sector you do employee self-evaluations. It's really companies want to get ahead of the curve. And so they go in and start providing, you know, like a halfway point to the government. Here's how I think I perform. Here's the issues that I've had that I've overcome. Uh, because many times at the end of that year's performance, you might have had one or two or three contracting offers to representatives involved, right? So there might not have been consistency across that from the government side. So we really wanted the companies I, I see really leaning forward with this have made good progress at, at documenting that and, and bringing it to the federal government so that when they start to run the CPARs, they've got something to start with. You go, oh, yeah, I remember they were supposed to be delivering something and the hurricane hit, but then they rerouted and they transported here and they still got it on time. I would have forgot about that if I hadn't seen that back in this report. Right. So it's not just merely from what you described either. Just, I guess in some cases it might mean I met the deadline or the delivery deadline, but in certain circumstances, right. if there's things that somebody had to overcome or there were changes that had to be adjusted to, you know, right. the contract performance, you're explaining how you accomplish those things. Successful. Exactly, because you want to be able to show how you've really developed and supported the mission. And there's a trend, uh, unfortunately, uh, I think it's unfortunate where you're seeing more just satisfactories and fewer very goods uh, and exceptionals. Uh, because if you do very good and exceptional, there's got to be a narrative on the government side for that. So sometimes if the government's got uh, gets behind on these and got to get a lot of them done, they'll go, okay, it's all satisfactory. And when I talked to some of my uh, prior government peers and colleagues, and they go, well, satisfactory is not bad. I mean, that means you delivered and you did what you're supposed to do. And I, I asked one of them recently, well, okay, I hear you about satisfactory, but what would happen if you went home tonight and you were sitting down with your significant other and they looked deep into your eyes and said, you are so satisfactory. Right? <laughs> no, nobody wants to be satisfactory, right? We We want to do better than that. And so right. I think companies have got to think about the context and the language so that they can really describe appropriately uh, the work that they've done and so that it can be captured and evaluated appropriately and then used through the source selection process under the past performance framework. That's kind of interesting too. I just because also if you're if you're a government employee, depending on your, you know, the evaluation scheme that a particular agency has for your performance. You know, nobody wanted to be satisfactory, right? No, yeah, you want to be very good or excellent, right? You wanted that. So right. you know, it it should be deserved, of course, but right. that that's kind of it, it's human nature, right? I don't want to write have to write the narrative or whatever. I, I don't get your take on that. It seems to me that at the end of the day, that that's not in the long term interest of the government because you want to be identifying those companies who are very good and not just like level, leveling the playing field that's satisfactory. You, Roger, absolutely right. You really want that differentiation. Right. You don't want everybody to be lumped together as satisfactory because you can't get any value from that assessment. Right. You really want that differentiation on who's really accomplishing the who is making it happen sometimes in spite of the obstacles that are thrown at them. Uh, those are the kind of partners that federal agencies really want to work with. Right. And especially when you're talking about statement of objectives, performance right. based, you want you know the best performing companies doing that kind of work for you. So we've talked about satisfactory and very good. Excellent. So what happens uh, or what, you know, what happens if you receive a, you know, a, a bad or unsatisfactory 
CPAR's evaluation, how do you overcome yeah. that if you're a company? Well, what, what do you, how do you deal with that? We need to re- need to reply right away and let them know that you want to have a meeting uh, to discuss this. Uh, you want to go ahead. If you haven't already gathered your facts, you got to gather your facts because there's clearly in this process an opportunity for industry to come in and reclama what this initial assessment is from the government. Uh, but again, there's a seven day time window and really there's a lot of nuance and language, right? If, if you're a company and you get a bad CPARS and you're not familiar with the language and CPARS, you, you should probably hire somebody to come in and help you work through this because words are important, right? So you just can't take and go, I met all the objectives in the contract, right? You really need to talk about it in the same sense that the government is going to have to support, substantiate whatever the rating is on their side. So you got to you got to really be an active partner in that. Don't don't just take that rating uh, if you don't think it's deserved. Now sometimes that rating comes out and vendors deserve that rating. Uh, they probably never think they do, but sometimes they do deserve that rating. But you know if that company really believes they have performed uh, and deserve more, they have to engage in a professional, positive way uh, with the government and really think about the language that they're using uh, and you know, got to do their research on the CPARs and what the different sections are and what uh, the ratings are and what differentiates between satisfactory and very good. And they have to write it that way. They just can't, you know, put a, put their glossy together and send it back to the government. So in this system, can those, if somebody has an initially, you know, negative sort of rating, let's say just use that term, uh, can that, based on that dialogue back and forth, be, you know, you're in company, you do as you said, you know, as you should do, like your advice there, go in and talk to them and, you know, explain and provide some, you know, feedback on it. Does that sometimes result in changes in the overall evaluation? It, it does. I've seen that happen many times where that goes and re- results in some changes. And sometimes that's because, as I mentioned before, you might have a different contracting uh, officer representative. And they may not have known about the things that happened the three months before they got there. So they only looked at the small window that they had while they were there. Uh, so I have seen those ratings change. And the company can always request a higher level review of the CPARs. But it's best to start back uh, with the person that sent that uh, to you and go in the system. And again, build reclama around the context of the CPARs. Don't build it around your proposal. Build it on what the context and the language is uh, that drives those CPARs evaluations. Right. Just sort of last thought too, because it, it truly does matter. I mean, it, uh, you know, bad evaluation is not a good thing for your, you know, yes. for very competitive future, correct? It's, exactly. You, you Right. And you don't want to be in the mix of everybody that's satisfactory, right? So I would suggest, even if you get a satisfactory back, I would, push back politely professionally on that. If I had something that I could point to and demonstrate that my performance uh, was more than satisfactory. Great. So Greg, we're up on the break and when we come back, continue our discussion on, on these contracting issues, but I'm also want to spend some time with you just talking about based on your experience over, over, you know, your career in government. So what, what are some of the keys to a high performing organization, both because you know, you've been, you've spent a, a started out, you know, in it as an engineer, as you mentioned, worked program management, worked your way up into uh, significant leadership positions in the government, just sort of your experience, what you saw, what's keys to leadership, keys to successful organizations. My guest today is Greg Giddens. He is a co-founder and partner in 
at Potomac Ridge Consulting. I'm Roger Waldron. You're listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. Welcome back to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. I'm Roger Waldron. My guest today is Greg Giddens. Greg is a co-founder and partner in Potomac Ridge Consulting, a boutique consultancy that supports federal contractors uh, in the federal marketplace. And Greg, I guess we went to sort of the end (laughs) about contract performance without going to the beginning. So maybe let's talk a little bit this segment because it, it is the where the rubber meets the road. I mean, literally, you know, the the sexy stuff, right, that people write about um, are all the contract awards and the bid protests right. and this and that. The only time I think you really ever hear about um, contract, actual contract performance and contract administration when something goes wrong, right? It's right. not yeah. a success story, usually, <laughs> that you see in the news. So, you know, from a contractor's perspective and the uh, you know, talk about like from day one, just sort of how it sort of rolls out and things people need to think about. Sure. And you're right, Roger. They'll, there's a lot of writing about the awards and, you know, companies will pop the champagne and they're just like, oh, great. But they really hadn't thought about how they're going to get started. Uh, and, and I've seen the really successful companies balance uh, their drive and their capture uh, with really a plan for execution. So that when they go into the government post award and have that kickoff meeting, they're really coming in with a plan in mind uh, and they go in listening to the government uh, because the government might have some nuanced requirements that have changed during the process. So you really want to listen to where the government's at and go ahead and start strong and build those relationships with the government and let them know that they are justified and having confidence in you that you can come in and deliver and at the, even at the beginning of the contract, go ahead and be thinking about what do I want my CPARs to be, right? Go ahead. And I know I've mentioned this a couple of times, but I'm a really believer in beginning with the end in mind. So if you want a successful CPARs 12, 15 months down the road, you need to start with day one thinking about, well, what do I need to do? And how do I need to make sure that the government is aware of what I'm doing? Uh, so that in the end, I, I am justifiably receiving a higher than satisfactory CPARs. You know, and, and that includes when things go wrong, raise your hand and go to the government and say, hey, we got an issue and here's what we're doing. Uh, I've seen companies get more in trouble, not from the issue, but from either their lack of awareness of the issue or uh, them trying to hide the issue from the government. Right? M- many of these companies are doing hard things in the federal space and it's not going to always go easy. And, and you, as an industry as a company, you don't want the government worrying, uh, wondering, did they not tell me about this because they don't know what's going on on the program or they know what's going on in the program, but they're trying to hide it from them because they don't think I'll understand what's happening. Right. So being being proactive and building those relationships uh, from the very beginning are very important for industry. Right. It's a, a contract. Is, it's a reflects a biz, business relationship. And it seems what it seems to me what you're saying is the keys to a you know, a positive business relationship or, a, a, you know, initiative to accomplish something like build something new or build an IT system comes, you know, it's communication and trust at the end of the day, yes. right? Yeah. Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. It's communication and trust because usually those programs are trying to do something significant in that uh, federal agency. Right. I guess the other thing in that context too, I guess, you know, it seems to me, you know, understanding the culture of the agency that you're working with um, and then picking the right people 
to be work on the contract or even just be like the program manager on the, on the contractor side, you know, the, um, the dedicated folks that are critical to that success. Um, that's right. all part of the equation, right? You have thoughts yeah, on that? Yeah, you have to, you, you, oh, you, you, that's right. You have to understand the culture understand the audience that you're working with on government side and have the right players on your side that can go to and communicate with their government counterparts and, and understand really what their government counterparts can and cannot do. Right. As a company, you don't want to go in and then ask your government counterpart to do something that, that they don't have the authority or it's not within the regulation for them to do. And uh, even if it's cross culture for what they're trying to do, because you really have to be from industry's perspective, have to be a, a 360 degree partner with the government. You had to think about how do you keep the program sold? How do you help the government understand the benefits of the work that you're doing? You know, just like one of the things uh, in any organization with employees, you want to make sure the employees are connected to the mission and so that they see how what they're doing impacts the mission. And you want their leadership to see that. That same thing applies in the acquisition and programs. Right? You want the companies working to be able to see the role that they have in accomplishing the agency's mission. And you want the agency to recognize that as well. And that's really about relationship and change management, which is something both I think the government and the industry sometimes does not pay enough attention to. Yeah, it, it, part of that, it's not really culture, but yeah, you touched on something that I want to get you to emphasize a little bit too. And that's like understanding the roles, the key right. roles and the authorities of the government folks. Cause you could think you're talking to the right person or dealing with the right person. And they're saying, well, I got to go talk to, you know, I can't right. do that. Right. Is that, I mean, that's right. something it, that people need to understand yeah. too, right? Yeah. You really, yeah. You got to understand the decision-making process and the decision authorities uh, for the government so that you can help them be as successful as they can. All right. So we got a couple minutes left, um, uh, Greg, and I wanted to like talk to you a little bit about, you know, you, you, again, you have 36 year career in the federal government. Um, you, you, you started as an engineer, as you mentioned, and you left um, government as a chief acquisition officer at the VA. Um, just your experience, you know, what are some of the keys to like a high performing organization? Uh, I think one of the initial keys for a high-performing organization is being uh, really having an ability to think broadly and then narrow, right? So when you first approach an issue, uh, an organization and its team needs to be confident enough to really have all the ideas come out on the table, right? And you can't narrow that too soon to the single best idea. So it's really convergent, divergent thinking, right? Where in the beginning, you want to diverge. You want to really have a lot of ideas flowing. And then you start to bring that together uh, and start to find out what really are the kind of the couple best uh, ideas. And you got to be open uh, to admitting mistakes and do that early, uh, right? Don't let that fester and, and keep going. The longer you go down the wrong path, the longer it's going to be to recover uh, from that. Now, sometimes organizations get too kind of caught up uh, in their own wake. Uh, that it's hard for them uh, really to make a turn. And, in, you know, the way technology and, and even uh, just dynamics are happening now, things are changing so rapidly, it's hard to know three, five years from now what's really going to be the right answer. And so I think those high-performing organizations, 
they look for partners that can help them through this journey without knowing exactly what I'm going to need to do two years from now. But I need a partner that I can trust and I can lean on that can help me be successful. And I guess probably my last one would be change management. High performing organizations focus on change management. They just don't throw something new out and assume everybody else is going to pick this up and just going to use it. And it's going to be the greatest thing ever. Uh, they really work hard at change management, identify those early adopters and support those and, and build something through the system uh, that people will see actually moves the organization forward. I hear a lot from industry that the government does not want to be innovative. Uh, they do, but it's tough for them uh, because of that change management aspect. I never saw anybody get called up to the hill that they took a risk to be innovative and it didn't work, and they got caught up to the hill and said, well, it was a good try to be innovative. Right? You don't get rewarded for that unless it's successful. So really being able to talk about that risk and change management and the elements that can be done to help the agency accomplish its mission, I think those all kind of roll together to make that organization really high-performing. Yeah, I think you made a great point. I had just 30 seconds or so left, but the private sector – in a lot of ways, it is actually easy in the private sector because you you don't have all the stakeholders that a government executive has to deal with, whether it's the IG, the Hill, you know, internal organizations who are seeking certain performance capabilities. You know, your your lawyers are there who are there to right. help you, but they can also hinder you. <laughs> yes, yes, can. I'm a lawyer. Yeah, I yeah. can take it. Yeah. Uh, but it's true. <laughs> you know, and then your, then your senior leadership and, and, you know, your mid management and, you know, the, you know, and the public is a, you know, is a stakeholder, yeah. all these different, you know, it's like a spokes on a wheel and you're in the, you're in the middle, like you're the, you know, right. um, there's all those stakeholders and it just does make it, you know, uh, a, a more I think a more intellectually challenging and ultimately rewarding, you know, um, challenge. I guess I don't know. Yeah, yeah, I, I do too. I, it, it's a it's pretty cool. Yeah, pretty cool. well, thanks for doing the show today, Greg. I really appreciate it. My pleasure, Rogers. Always good to see you. I want to thank my guest today, Greg Giddens. He is a co-founder and partner at Potomac Ridge Consulting, a boutique consultancy supporting federal contractors in the federal market. I'm Raj Waldron, and you've been listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. You've been listening to Off the Shelf with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement on Federal News Network. Tune in Tuesday mornings at 11 or subscribe to this show on iTunes or Podcast One.